back to the Seeking Proof Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell, and this week, as with every week, I want to remind you of the most important truth in the entire universe. God loves you. I hope you're starting to grasp that and wrap your arms around it as we go forward. It is the most important thing you can possibly understand. Now, last week, we really took a deep dive on looking at this question of the atonement. And as we get closer to starting off looking at this question of were we created or did we evolve, the next topic I'd really like to address is the resurrection. Now, you may think that's an odd choice, and I understand why, but go with me for just a little bit on this, and let me explain to you what we're looking at. As we start dealing with some of these bigger picture questions of were we created or did we evolve, I tend to find that there is a habit of some people to draw back and not be willing to draw a conclusion. I was watching a debate the other day between two philosophers on this topic of does God exist? And the atheist philosopher in this question kept drawing back and saying, someday science will find the answer. Okay. It was, it was interesting to watch because he kept putting forward how important science was and science could do all of these things and we just needed to give science time. And it became apparent as the debate went on that the reality was he had changed the name of his God to science and he was worshiping at the altar of science beyond all else. Science knew the answers to all questions. Science was able to answer anything. Even if science hadn't provided an answer today, science would provide the answer down the road. But the reality is there are some questions that science is never going to be able to answer. I mean, truth be told, some questions are more philosophically based. And um, one of the things we're going to see in the weeks to come is there are a great many scientists who are amazing scientists. Stephen Hawking, before he passed away, brilliant scientist, nobody questions. His philosophy, however, has created a lot of controversies that we're going to have to wade through. He was a brilliant scientist, maybe not the best philosopher in the world. And we're going to look at some of his philosophical statements that have generated a lot of confusion and problems for people who think, well, Stephen Hawking has disproved God's existence. No, Stephen Hawking has not disproven God's existence. His, his questionable philosophical conclusions may have concluded that God's not necessary. But I think what we'll see in the weeks to come is that was not necessarily good philosophy and not really true. What we want to do in the weeks to come is look at the evidence that we're facing and actually draw a conclusion based on the evidence that we're seeing and what the likely conclusion or the likely outcome of that evidence is. One of the things we want to address this week as we look at the question of the resurrection is a religious philosophy, and that's probably going to make some people mad when I explain what it is, but I believe the religion of David Hume. And David Hume, for those of you who don't know the name, was an 18th century skeptic and philosopher. And Hume's idea was that miracles basically could not exist. And for that, he listed two specific reasons. Number one, miracles were the least likely explanation of anything possible. Basically, anything else was preferable as an explanation for an event other than a miracle. And number two, no amount of evidence could possibly overcome that hurdle that a miracle could not be proven. So it didn't matter what you put on the table, it would never be enough to prove that a miracle had actually occurred. Now, lest anyone be tempted to agree with that, most philosophers have moved on from Hume's ideas because they're fundamentally flawed at the core. It really is more of a, a blind faith-based statement against miracles than it is anything else. It's ridiculous to say 
that all that exists is only what we can see around us. If we were to take Hume's ideas at face value, what he's ultimately suggesting is anything that we don't understand that someone might be tempted to say falls into the realm of the miraculous. Like, I don't know, a hundred years ago, the idea that the universe leapt into existence in the Big Bang, then we would call that miraculous and we would simply have to say that it's impossible. Now, most, again, most scientists would be willing to go, okay, that's very scientific real possibility, but we're only willing to do so if it's in fact a scientific possibility and not a supernatural one. When it comes to a supernatural possibility, we rule that out immediately. Why? If we allow for the possibility that we were in fact created, and again, until you rule it out, you have to allow for the possibility. If we allow for the possibility that we're, we were created, then is, we have to ask two questions. Is that creator, the person who created the universe, was powerful enough, wise enough, and knowledgeable enough to create the universe? Is it possible that they could actually perform a miracle? In the case of the resurrection, let's say, breathing life back into the body of someone who had passed away and healing them. Sure, that's within the realm of possibility. If someone created us, then obviously they have the wisdom, knowledge, and power to heal us and breathe life back into us again. And the second question would be, is it within their character to do so? And certainly there are questions that we will answer down the road that would say, yes, it's well within their character to do so. So there's no way that we can simply exclude the miraculous or things that we don't necessarily understand. It simply is not logical to do so. In the case of the resurrection, we're really only looking at three points. The last point is going to be the controversial one. But as we look at these three points, the question becomes, what is the cause of the event that we're looking at? There's three events. Number one, Jesus was a real person. We're going to talk about later. That's absolutely true. Jesus was a real person who existed 2,000 years ago. Number two, he was crucified by the Roman governor Pontius Pilate and died. Again, without question, historical event. Historians, most historians will absolutely agree that that is the case. Number three is where the rubber really hits the road. Jesus' disciples believed that they saw him physically healed and physically resurrected three days later after he had died and been buried. How is that possible? And for the next 40 days, Jesus made multiple appearances to multiple people, up to and over 500 people at one time. The question becomes, how do we analyze that event? It's that event of the resurrection that we have to analyze. And the danger of using Hume's ideas is simply to step away from it and not make a choice or rule it out because it's, it sounds miraculous. Obviously, it's not a normal event. With Hume's ideas, what we would say is, well, anything that's not normal, we simply have to walk away from it and we can't analyze it. Well, then we could have never analyzed the Big Bang. We could have never analyzed the beginning point of the universe if we simply have to walk away from, as a possibility, anything that we don't fully understand. Hume's ideas don't work here. The question is not whether or not something like the Big Bang happens every day or whether or not the resurrection happens every day. The question is, if the event has occurred, what is the most likely explanation for the event that has occurred? It's possible that the explanation is, well, everybody got it wrong. Everybody hallucinated. Whatever those answers may be, that's what we have to look at and analyze. 
So the challenge I'm going to have for each of you as we look at this question of the resurrection is, looking at the evidence that we have at hand, what is the most likely answer? And what we're not going to do is to walk away from it and not make a decision. That's what we've got to do in this case, and that's what we've got to do in all of the steps that lie ahead of us, going from nothing to where we are today. So part of the reason that we're looking at this as an exercise for what lies ahead, but part of it is to also address the question, how did we get here? I want to set the stage for you 2,000 years ago of where we are when the resurrection occurs so that we can get a feel for what was going on in everyone's minds. So 2,000 years ago, obviously the biggest issue that everyone's facing is Rome rules the world. And that's not a great thing if you're under Roman rule. Most people are not Roman citizens. Most people are slaves or servants of Rome. And for most of the world, it doesn't work out very well underneath Roman rule. Your life is relatively cheap. Life is short and no one's really all that nice. It's a, it's a world that's impossible for many of us to imagine today. The Jewish people have been waiting for 500 years for the Messiah to come, someone that they believed was going to deliver them, in this case, deliver them from Roman rule. And the prophet Daniel had foretold the Messiah's coming. And so this was the time when it was going to happen, right around this time. So everyone believes that the Messiah should be there, and everyone is waiting for this milit conquering military king that he's going to bring about on the throne of David, that he's going to bring about a kingdom that will never end. And so everyone has anxiously been awaiting this military ruler to come in and overthrow Rome. It's easy to understand why. And about that same time, this young Jewish carpenter comes on the scene. His name is Jesus. And he works signs and miracles, and even his opponents recognize and have documented for us historically that Jesus was credited with working miracles. But he doesn't seem to exactly fit the bill. He, he spends a lot of time talking about how everybody has misunderstood what God, who God is, and they're missing God's heart. They understand the letter of the law, but not the spirit of the law. And he gets into a lot of conflicts with the religious leaders of the day, trying to help them to understand that they become legalistic and hard-hearted. And he teaches ideas that even 2,000 years later, ideals that we still haven't achieved. Even Richard Dawkins will admit that Jesus' ideas are way, way, way beyond his time. So he sets this incredible standard, and he just captivates the people with this idea of hope and love, and he lays out for the people of the day that they've got it wrong, and that they really don't understand who God is. And then he starts trying to explain to them who the Messiah is, and that they don't have that right either. And he starts painting this picture for them. What if the Messiah was really focused on the eternal? That the kingdom wasn't here, that the kingdom was going to be an eternal kingdom. And that's something that's just way outside of their scope of understanding. Then after three years of his ministry, he looks at his disciples, his closest followers, as they get ready to head to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. And he tells them the unthinkable that he's going up to Jerusalem and that the religious leaders will kill him. They will crucify him, and three days later he'll be raised from the dead. He identifies that he's going to die for the sins of mankind, and this has just got to be... They, they, don't, they clearly don't have any idea what he's talking about. They, they think it can't be possible, and I think probably some of them are hoping that he's the Messiah, and 
He's there to, he's still going to wage this military victory against the Romans, and the kingdom is coming, and even after he dies and is raised from the dead, the disciples are still looking at him going, is it time for the kingdom? And he's probably going, you've got to be kidding me, guys. Do you still not get it? But he starts setting the stage for them of what's about to happen, and it just had to sound like foolishness to them. I love, in N.T. Wright's book, The Resurrection of the Son of God, he describes it this way, this idea of the resurrection. And I love the picture that he paints of the mindset, not just of the Jewish people. And remember, this is taking place with these Jewish followers of his in this context of what did it mean for someone to be raised from the dead. And I, I love the way N.T. Wright paints this picture for us. When the early Christians spoke of Jesus being raised from the dead, the natural meaning of that statement throughout the ancient world was the claim that something had happened to Jesus which had never which had happened to nobody else a great many things supposedly happened to the dead the resurrection did not the pagan world assumed it was impossible the jewish world believed it would happen eventually but knew perfectly well that it had not done so yet from a jewish perspective and remember all of the writings that we have in the bible the entire early church is made up of jewish believers they expected a resurrection of the dead to occur at the end of time, not now in the middle, but at the end of time. And surely that Jesus couldn't be talking about the same thing. And then things reach a breaking point. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus heals a man named Lazarus. And that's it for the religious leadership. The Sanhedrin decides he has got to die because he is going to stir up so much trouble with the Romans that eventually the Romans are going to put down the Jewish people and he's posing a threat to the entire country and Jesus has to go. So when he enters Rome after a few days, he gets into a conflict with the religious leaders and they have him arrested and brought to trial one night. And rather than backing off of his claims, Jesus, Jesus claims to be equal with God. And that's it. He's convicted on the spot of the crime of blasphemy for making himself equal with God. He's beaten and he's hauled to Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor. And the, the crowd demands, the Sanhedrin demands and, and stirs the crowd up and they demand that Jesus be crucified for what he's done. And Pilate, unable to sway the crowd, acquiesces to their demands. And Jesus is beaten. He has a crown of thorns jammed on his head. And he's beaten and scourged. And scourging meant it involved a punishment like we can't imagine. It was a beating and a whipping that just physically tore you apart. And he's beaten so badly that before they even send him to the cross, he's probably in the process of dying already from the trauma and the blood loss and everything else that's occurred. He carries his own cross to the hill Golgotha. And there he is crucified. He's nailed to the cross, and he is so badly beaten. A few hours later, he succumbs to his injuries, and he dies on the cross. And just to be sure, the Romans take a spear, and they spear him in the heart to make sure he's dead. Two of his followers, both of them members of the Sanhedrin, Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, get his body, get, agree, get Pontius Pilate to agree to turn his body over to them. And they take his body, and they take spices and wraps and things, and they prepare his body according to the, to the Jewish laws to get him ready for burial. And they bury him that evening very quickly in Joseph of Arimathea's own tomb that he has set aside for himself. And it's witnessed by his female followers what they do. And the tomb is sealed and all hope is lost. The Messiah is seemingly dead. 
and the Sanhedrin, the religious leadership, set up a guard to guard the tomb because they remembered that Jesus had promised that he would raise from the dead. And they don't want anybody coming and stealing his body and making the claim that he did so. The disciples are crushed, and they're ready to flee because they think they're next. And little do they realize that nobody cares about them anymore, that they're insignificant, but they're petrified and hiding and they're ashamed and embarrassed that they abandoned Jesus in his hour of need, and that all of their talk of, we'll stay with you to the death, Lord, all melted away as soon as a crowd came and, and drug Jesus off. And three days later, on that Sunday morning, some of his female followers go to properly anoint the body, because they figure that Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus probably didn't do a very good job. And they go back to make sure that he has a proper burial and that he's taken care of. And the impossible happens. When they get to the tomb, despite the fact that a guard had been posted there, the tomb is open and empty, and they don't possibly know what to think. And then suddenly Jesus appears to multiple of his followers on multiple times. I love the way Paul describes it in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul walks through it this way, and I, and I love this early creed. Paul would have gotten this, well, Paul first got this directly from Jesus, very soon after the resurrection, within a year or two after the resurrection, Paul goes from persecuting the church to being the greatest missionary the church has ever seen. Paul goes from not believing to believing, and he recounts that story for us in a letter to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Paul says, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you, which, you, which also you received and in which you stand, by which also you are saved. If you hold fast that word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received. He got it directly from Jesus. And then, after he got it from Jesus, he spent time in fellowship with the Lord. And then he went back to Jerusalem and he met with the leadership of the church, the people who had been there. And he got brought up to speed on all the things that had happened in Jesus' ministry. And he conferred and talked with them about the things that they had seen and their interactions with the risen Christ. And Paul comes out of it, again, within a very few years of when Jesus died and was resurrected. He comes out of it with a very new understanding, and he walks out of it with this, with the creed, with the gospel message that had already formed immediately after Jesus' death and resurrection. That gospel message is preserved for us in those first few days, months, and years, and goes forward, and Paul is recount recounting that for the church at Corinth. Starting back in verse 3, he says, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, so according to the Old Testament for us, and that he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, that's Peter, and then by the twelve, the disciples, and after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once, of whom the greater part remain to the present, but some have fallen asleep, they've passed away. And after that he was seen by James, that is the Lord's half-brother, and then by all of the apostles. And then last of all he was seen by me also, as one born out of due time. For I am the least of the apostles, who am not worthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. But I labored more abundantly than they all. Yet not I, but the grace of God which was in me. Therefore, whether it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. 
What, what Paul is saying to them is, look, we were eyewitnesses. We were eyewitnesses and we saw this. The reason that we preach these things under threat of death from the, from the religious leadership and the Romans, the reason that we're risking our lives is because we saw this. We saw the unexplainable happen and the only explanation is that he rose from the dead. They were grappling with this same question. And, and they were grappling with the same question because they were there. Some of them saw him beaten and scourged and crucified and died. And what they knew very well was when you were crucified by the Romans, you didn't survive it. And you most certainly were not healed from it three days later. This isn't a statement by Paul only of what he saw happen. The reason he lists out all these people, the reason he looks at the Corinthians and he says, hey, all of these people saw Jesus after he died and then rose again, fully physically resurrected and physically healed. He looks at them and says, if you don't believe me, there's 500 plus people out there who also saw him. Go ask one of them. Most of them are still alive. This was eyewitness testimony. I love um, Acts chapter 1, Luke, who wrote the book of Luke, obviously, and the book of Acts. Luke recounts it for us this way in, in verse 3. Actually, I'm going to jump back a little further to verse 1. The former account I made, O Theopolis, Theopolis was the person who commissioned him to write the work, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach until the day that he was taken up, after he, through the Holy Spirit, had given commandments to the apostles whom he had chosen, to whom he also presented himself alive after his suffering by many infallible proofs, being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the things pertaining to the kingdom of God. This is the event. What we have to decide is, what is the most likely explanation for the event? And that is what we will take care of next week. So, hang on, and next week we're going to jump to this jump to this question of what actually did occur based on the claims that the, the disciples are making, based on what they say occurred, what is the most likely explanation? We have three events in question. Jesus is a real person. We'll talk about that. Jesus died on the cross at the hands of Pontius Pilate, and Jesus' disciples saw him three days later and over the next 40 days at multiple times at multiple places raised from the dead. What is the most likely explanation for that? And that we will answer next week. Like I said, this is our jumping off point. We have been faced with a set of circumstances. We have been faced with an event. Now we have to draw a conclusion. No matter where that conclusion takes us, we have to draw a conclusion. And what we may find at the end of it is something far greater than we ever could have imagined. We'll see you next week on the Seeking Proof, Finding Grace podcast. I'm your host, Ron Campbell. If you have questions, once again, please reach out to us on our, at our email address of prooftograce at yahoo.com, or you can find us at our website of prooftograce.com. You can also find our podcasts on Apple and Spotify. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you so much for joining us. Bye-bye.